Welcome to Alternative Dog Moms Podcast. I'm Kimberly Gautier, the creator of Keep the Tail Wagging. For the past nine years, I've been blogging about raw feeding, pet wellness, and life as a crazy dog mom. I've seen massive improvements in my dog's health since I started raising my dogs naturally, and I'm passionate about sharing my experience to help other pet parents. I'm Erin Scott. For the past nine years, I've been researching and learning everything I can about healing cancer, allergies, autoimmune, and mystery illnesses in both my dogs and myself, and I can't wait to share with you everything I've learned on this journey. As the Alternative Dog Moms, we're bringing you all the latest dog health news that we're following and sharing the tips, tricks, and resources we learn along the way. Now, let's get started. Hello, Kimberly. Hello, Erin. So I'm very excited. We have a very special guest with us here today who I got to meet in person at the Healthy Dog Expo in Albany back in May. So welcome, Dr. Steve Marsden. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have to ask, though, have you ever not had a special guest on? <laughs> you ever just introduce people as like, I've got a really ordinary guest. Yeah, All of our guests are very special. <laughs> <laughs> but that does not diminish the specialness of this occasion. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I'm relieved. <laughs> so I was saying, you know, my veterinarian speaks so highly of you. So I'm excited to have everyone meet you. And, and then I'm going to send her this uh, to listen to also. <laughs> oh, absolutely. We'll have to drop her name repeatedly. Dr. <laughs> Stephanie Medcroft. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and she's like the last person on earth that wants that, but I'm going to say hey to Dr. Medcroft anyway. Just call Dr. <laughs> Stephanie Medcroft at, yeah. <laughs> so I am always curious about veterinarians. Did you always grow up wanting to be a veterinarian, or, or how did this whole career path uh, come about for you? Yeah, um, you know, it definitely when, ever since I was a little kid, so from the uh, you know, probably from the age of, actually, I can remember, it's like, I was about seven years old. And, you know, my eyeballs only came up to about as high as this desk that I'm sitting at now. And um, we had taken our cat to our vet. And uh, my parents had always taught me to kind of respect animals. We always had pets around the house. And we took our one cat to this veterinary clinic. And the veterinarian just kind of ran his hands over the cat and then told my mother what was wrong. And I was just like in awe that somebody could know so much about animals that they could just touch them and they would, you know, immediately they just knew animals so well, they would know what was wrong. I just thought I want to be that person. I mean, my heroes were like, you know, Tarzan and Mowgli. So the idea of talking to animals was, you know, top of mind for me. Then here's some, real life person who seems like they can do it. So I right then and there, I be, wanted to become a veterinarian, but it's interesting. I go back to that moment sometimes from time to time to just kind of like try to understand what was it that so captivated me? Cause at, at first it was just this knowledge of animals, but later on, as I got into Chinese medicine, um, that's very much what we're doing. We're basically feeling pulses and running our hands over acupuncture points and feeling the pulse change and then being able to tell what's wrong. And so I really feel like I only achieved that childhood dream once I got into holistic medicine. <laughs> so you and your lovely wife gave probably the most memorable talk of the Healthy Dog Expo. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I, I was giving us a, a valedictorian speech once and I just did not know what to say. And 
one of the professors said, you know what? If uh, everyone tries to be inspiring, but if you're funny, people will remember you. So there you go. <laughs> we, we went for funny. <laughs> but hopefully a few, a few messages stuck in your head as a result of our shenanigans on stage. <laughs> It was fabulous. And, but I learned, you know, through, through your talk that you weren't like a holistic Chinese medicine veterinarian, like right out the gate. So can you tell us a little bit about how that journey unfolded? Uh, Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I went to veterinary college in the eighties. So, you know, alternative medicine wasn't really on the radar, but um, the little bits and pieces that we would hear about it are our instructors taught us a, an unhealthy disregard for it. It's ironic that, you know, veterinarians call themselves scientists and yet we were told not to think about anything other or take anything except what they were telling. I know. I say this all the time. Thank you so much for validating me. I feel so good. Yesterday or it was a day for yesterday. I was called a, what was it called? A, a, a dog food conspiracy theorist. And the guy who's calling me this, he was like, well, excuse me, but I just appreciate science. And I'm like, what's not scientific? I'm giving you like information from veterinarians. Is is it because you don't agree? So now all of a sudden it's just pseudoscience and it's witchcraft. (laughs) Okay, I'm done. Right. You know, (laughs) veterinarians are humans and humans can't help but have bias. So you're right. There is a lot of science behind real fresh food diets. There's probably more science behind expecting them to work well than kibble. So it's, um, it's really kind of ass backwards from, from uh, the way that we sort of assume, but you kind of have to step outside your profession in order to see it when you're in it. You can't, you can't understand why somebody else would, you know, criticize what you're doing as a conventional veterinarian. But I had to step outside of it because I, um, you know, I hadn't I'd only been graduated a couple of years and I was already, you know, disenchanted because there were so many things that um, uh, I just didn't really fully, I wasn't able to really fully diagnose or tell what they were. And it, that bugged me. I mean, you could hazard a guess, but knowing what was wrong. Remember, that's why I got into it, right? I wanted to, this guy just knew what was wrong. So to realize that that was a frequent occurrence that you didn't know for sure what was wrong and people didn't have the money to help you find out. And now what are you going to do? It just felt, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, just not intellectually satisfying. And then if I did know what was wrong, half the time the treatments were <laughs> Or worse than the disease. I can remember one woman, uh, she brought me her dog with uh, lupus. And like the, the skin was all peeling off the nose and it was all nasty. And it was, you know, I did a biopsy, but I already knew what was wrong. And a biopsy confirmed that the dog had lupus. So I put the dog on immune suppressive doses of corticosteroids because that's all we had back in the 80s. And um, the dog came back in. Uh, I don't know, maybe a few weeks later, the nose was perfect, (laughs) but the rest of the dog was a mess. Like, you know, just the muscle wasting and the kind of the sunken in cheeks and he was peeing all the time and drinking all the time. And she's like, this is not sustainable. Have you got nothing else? And I didn't have anything else. And so she went away. She said, I can't, I can't keep doing this. And so she weaned her dog off the prednisone. She came back about, I don't know, three or four weeks after that, 
dog's beautiful. All of so it was back fleshed out again. And uh, she said, I just wanted you to see my dog. It's like, well, it looks fantastic. I thought, you know, like anybody does, yeah, the drugs. <laughs> right? Actually, I stopped the drugs. And this is just vitamin E ointment that's on his nose. And that's all that's taking care of this. So I had a lot of, I had a lot of people give me humble pie, big slices of humble pie. And uh, that, um, you know, it, it, began to make me start to think, but, um, I didn't still, I really wasn't open-minded per se, but then, so this is going to be as long a story as you want. Do you want the long version? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll try to keep it mercifully short. Um, a woman brought in her kids. Remember this is eight. Have you ever heard of the, the novel or the movie flowers in the attic? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Where the, the woman is keeping her, kids or her stepchildren or whatever in the attic and feed yeah. them sugars or cookies dusted with arsenic <laughs> and pretending it's sugar. Yeah. So that movie and that novel was really big at the time that uh, this one woman came in, she was a real estate agent. And, you know, I sometimes think if, if, if the afternoon had gone differently or if I hadn't been interested in talking to her, cause she was not my favorite person. <laughs> um, what would my life have been like? But at any rate, it, it definitely turned on a dime that day. And she's, she brought, she, her kids are standing by the wall. She put the dog on the counter and said, needs his vac- vaccines. So I drop my pink injections. And as I'm injecting her dog, she goes, I believe in preventative medicine for my kids too. And it almost doesn't really bear a response, right? Like who doesn't believe in preventative medicine for their children of some type, but and I thought she meant vaccines, but I said, well, what do you mean? And she goes, well, I give them arsenic every morning. And it's like, what? So I looked at her kids standing against the wall, and they didn't look all pasty-faced and vomiting on their shoes, like, you know, flowers in the attic children. And I said, arsenic? And she goes, well, it's homeopathic. Like, she was all defensive. And I had no idea what homeopathic arsenic was. So I had to go to the library, and I took this book out. And, um, I, it was only, you know, it's probably only like a hat, three quarters of an inch thick, but I became addicted to that little book. We didn't have bookstores back then. <laughs> we just had libraries. So I, I became addicted to that little book and I would carry it around with me because in the chat, there's different chapters and the author had tried acupuncture and they tried herbal medicine. They tried chiropractic and they tried homeopathy. And in the homeopathy chapter, um, at the end of it, there it says, you know, homeopathy is widely practiced in England by veterinarians to treat the following diseases. And he listed every single thing that frustrated me. So I thought, okay, well, you know, vets in England, they're no slouches. They're uh that's tougher to get into vet school there than North America. So I I started reading that little book and I became addicted to it. I would carry it in my car and um, I would, if there was a stoplight, I was so happy because I could read a couple of sentences. <laughs> I was just, I was crazy. Anyway, um, so I, I decided to try homeopathy first because it seemed like it was the easiest thing to kind of weave into practice. It's just little pills, right? Everyone's used to little pills. So I tried it out. I was terrible at it, to be honest, for the first six months. That was really disappointing. But I, came back to it and I kept trying. And uh, there is a veterinarian in England who just passed away 
Christopher Day. I He's probably the per- single person who put me on my holistic tr- uh, journey as a veterinarian. Um, I wrote to him because I knew he used homeopathy all the time and I just couldn't get to work in my hands. And I said, can I just come and hang out with you for, you know, like, and of course it's all snail mail back then. There's no email, no texting. So it took a long time to get his reply. His reply was, no, <laughs> I'm way too busy. Um, but bless his heart. He bought a whole bunch of books. Some of them he'd written and some he'd just gone and bought homeopathic first aid books boxed them up at his expense, sent him snail mail to me and said, just, just start with these simple things, things that housewives are treating and just get, get to know a few remedies, a few pictures and wait for those animals to come in your door. And then as you get more proficient, you can start to set of, you can start to try to figure out what a remedy, what remedy goes with that animal instead of just having a picture and waiting for the perfect animal. So that's what I did. And at first, it worked right away. I started getting successes. But, of course, they're easy cases, right? They're first aid cases. So I still hadn't really proven homeopathy to myself. But then uh, one day, an animal came in that um, was destined to be put to sleep. It was in a horrendous problem. I don't want to go into details because I know that a lot of your audience just ate. But um, it was a really bad I abscess and drugs had made it so much worse. And the owner said, I don't want this dog back until you fixed it. And when I called ophthalmologist, they just said, there's nothing you can do for that. That's a, uh, that you got to put them to sleep. And I just could not put this animal to sleep because of an eye. Like it just was not an equation that made sense in my head. So I, I tried my best with my little new homeopathic skills. And, um, that dog's eye healed in about five days and wow. it became perfect. And this was the worst case. This was like the eye was being pushed out of the skull. The, the cornea had turned to like shoe leather. There was pus pouring out. Like it was just. There. I know it was his legs. <laughs> yeah. like that didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, um, the eye, it just, it just went to normal in five days. You, you couldn't tell one eye from the other after five days. I was shocked. And so that convinced me. I, I remember hanging up the phone after checking with the owner to make sure it really was truly better a week later. I came out of my little doctor's office and I said, I got to move to Oregon. Like I had to, I'd gotten sent the syllabus for the, what is now the National University of Natural Medicine by mistake. And I remember reading it and thinking, oh, in another life, this would have been really great because, you know, it was a really, really good course uh, of training to become a naturopath. So I, uh, but as soon as I saw this dog got better, I, I thought, what am I missing? Like there's, what other holes are there in my education? Like clearly the people said, it's all hogwash. We're very wrong and I need to get good at it. So where am I going to go to get good at it? We didn't really have veterinary programs back then everyone was just getting started in it. So I um, thought, well, I'll get human training and I'll adapt it to animals because I'm sure if I go to a human school, I'll learn to do it well um, because they sue people. (laughs) 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 So, and that's, that's, that's how I basically got into it. I eventually moved into Chinese medicine, same way. Uh, A friend of mine 
who was in, in the naturopathic college with me said, I want to do a master's of science in Oriental medicine because it's a brand new degree for North America, let alone that college. And he said, you want to do it with me? I don't want to do it alone. And I said, okay. So um, just before I, you know, ponied up my bucks, I uh, got a textbook and I spent that summer in a vet clinic in any wacko case that came along. I would take, I'd be looking through this book, trying to sort of surmise what their Chinese medical diagnosis might be and then find somehow the herbal formula to treat them in Chinatown or whatever, and then see if they got better. And two thirds of them got better. And they were like mystery cases that nobody could understand. And so I thought, okay, this totally works for me. So I went in it with him two weeks later, he dropped out. But by then I was totally hooked. I, uh, so I, I got my master's of science in Oriental medicine at the same time as my doctorate in naturopathic medicine. And then I, Adapted it to animals as I went. You can see how when you ask me a question, it takes <laughs> you might want to stick to yes, no's. <laughs> now you have your own line of Chinese herbal formulas. So how did that come about? And did you focus on things that were really common or things that were mysterious? Or how, how did you determine what formulas you wanted to start with? Right. Um Yes. No, just kidding. Um, the, uh, that's another open-ended question. Here we go. Buckle in. Of course, I was really enamored with Chinese medicine. I started using herbs all the time, but I was just making up my own stuff to treat my own patients. And I can remember one woman, she was the uh, wife of the vice president of Nike. And I, to this day, I sort of feel like she was probably my muse because I'm treating her dog and her dog's doing great. And she says, you should start making this stuff for vets and selling it to vets. And I said, I don't know anything about that. Like, I just, I know how to mix up a bottle for your dog. That's all I know. And she goes, okay, well, yeah, I think you should. And so it stuck with me. I, I, um, I had to give a lecture for a weekend at Tufts University in Boston. Um, and they wanted a weekend herb course and they wanted starter kits. And so I thought, okay, I got to make up all these herbs for these vets so that they can use what I'm using. And so once I had done that once and equipped these 60 vets with their little starter kits, I thought, I guess I'm doing what my muse told me to do. How amusing. <laughs> so I uh, um, started helping vets at first. And that was definitely my focus for, you know, probably it's the majority of my career. But then around about COVID, um, I started getting interested in um, senior dog rescues. My wife wanted to move to my wife, Dr. Karen Marsden, who you saw on stage with me. She wanted to move someplace warmer after 20 years in the cold, dark winters of Northern Canada. So we moved to San Diego, or at least we spent half our time there. And I didn't have a green card. I couldn't work. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? I don't want to get rusty. So there's senior dog rescues are a thing in Southern California. So I just made contact with a senior dog rescue and um, asked, you know, do you want some help? Because bless their hearts, senior dog rescues. I just, you know, the people that run those things are amazing mm -hmm. because you can imagine the dogs, they're, decre they're de decrepit, right? They got a zillion things wrong with them. They, the only criterion for being adopted by or fostered by these senior dog rescues is you're old. 
That's it. If you're old and they catch you and they notice you, you're, you're in. So she, she had a, a, um, it's their Lionel's legacy is who I was working with. And, uh, she had a, her, her stack of vet bills for a year was like easily a foot high and they pay all that themselves. Like they, you know, if, even if they foster these dogs out, if the dog has an issue, they pay the vet bills. And I just thought, wow, you guys have hearts of gold. So, uh, but I bet you I can cut that stack in half. Um, and are you game? And she said, yes, I am. So I started just seeing her animals on a regular basis and those of her organization and coming up with herbal formulas that she would be able to kind of prescribe without me um, for what turned out to be a half dozen conditions, you know, allergies, anxiety, lameness and pain, um, things that were, you didn't need a vet to kind of assess, but which were big issues and maybe deal breakers when it came to finding a home. So I just, after a couple of years, I kind of perfected these formulas that would work most of the time and that were safe. And, and then I realized, well, who doesn't have an anxious dog or a lame dog or an itchy dog? Like we should go ahead and make these available to the general public at large. And so that's how that gold standard herbs line came to be. So one story that's kind of interesting from my, from my experience is the formula that you have as Cesarex is actually what really helped my dog Penny that Dr. Megcroft prescribed. And I'm probably going to butcher how it was uh, prescribed to me, but it was like Si Wutong and Shao Chai Huchong. Am I? Oh, very well. Okay. You're hired. <laughs> and and I was trying to see if I, could, <laughs> no. I was trying to see if I could find like a picture. I mean, Penny's feet were like horribly red and inflamed and she had like these sores and it was oozing and it was, you mm. know, gross. And and I'm over here like we feed raw and we do all these right. things that I thought are the right things to do. And like, they how are. did this happen? You know, <laughs> yeah. they are, it's just not quite enough. Right. That's what, that's the lesson. But well, I'm so glad that your dog got better. That's all. Yeah. She, she did really, really well for like two or three, three years after that. Excellent. So with tra- traditional Chinese veterinary medicine, I mean, we know other veterinarians who practice that, right? So what I thought was really exciting about, what you're doing is that you are making it accessible for pet parents to get it directly from you and not work with the vet. Did you have any concerns about that at all? I I did. I was worried most of all about veterinarians because I spent 20 years supporting them. And I was worried that they would take it the wrong way. Um, I mean, you know, Dr. Stephanie Medcroft, (laughs) your veterinarian has a shelf full of stuff and you know, there's just no way you can take all the things that Stephanie knows and all the things stuff and just kind of going and put that in the general public and expect them uh, to succeed the way uh, Dr. Metcroft does. But there are certain situations where we're always reaching for the same thing. For example, uh, like your example, if a dog is raw fed and is on this great diet and they have allergies, like why is that happening? When that happens, I know that they're going to need that Cesarex slash Xiao Chai Hutong plus Su Hutong. Um, so I, I know that that's what the issue is, is or that's what they're going to need. And, and I never 
don't prescribe it for that situation. So why do we need a holistic vet to mediate that? Because most of us are not lucky enough to have a holistic veterinarian at our disposal. And if we do, they oftentimes are booked yeah. up. So it made sense to me, especially during COVID, when people could not get in to see vets, let alone holistic ones, that we need to have stuff that's more directly accessible. But I was worried that vets would be annoyed by that. But what's happened is they've said, thank you. Because, you know, now they can put this stuff in the waiting room. Somebody wants to bring their itchy dog in. They got a, a month long waiting list. Now the receptionist can say, you know what? Change the diet to a fresh food diet. And if that's not working, get a bottle of this. And if it's not, if, if the, those two steps don't work for you, well, then your appointment is going to be, you know, right there. But if it does work for you, then you've saved yourself however many hundred dollars uh, an exam is. And, um, you know, good for you. We can, we can save the space for somebody who can't be gotten better that easily. So it's, it's kind of like a, it's like a triage, yeah. right? Veterinarians can triage cases. And uh, the ones that are kind of easy to hit out the park, they can, they can set them up with the, the gold standard line. And then the ones that are much more difficult and more nuanced, well, then that's where their talents get put to work. So it actually makes better use of a veterinarian's time. So it, my, fortunately, uh, veterinarians were open to it yeah. and not, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because with, you know, because of COVID and, you know, being stuck at home, not being able to go to the vet, or if you did go, you had to sit in the parking lot. Um, I found myself put in a position where I had to start looking at my dog differently. So I had to figure out as much as I could because it, since, you know, a lot of times I would just go in and we would have like a casual conversation and then stuff would come out and stuff. But now, since I have to be in the parking lot and I get FaceTime yeah. for a few minutes, you know, seconds, basically, I need to say, okay, this is what I'm concerned about. This is what I think is, go you know, that type of conversation. And when you mentioned triage, that's what I feel like that's the direction we're going where pet parents are really going to have to start diagnosing and treating the really minor issues rather than going to the vet every single time something seems wrong. It's sort of like, let me see what I can do here. And if you're not better in 48 hours, then that's when we um, go to the vet. Right. And put the things in place that just don't allow those little things to happen. Yeah. Right. Such as those fresh food diets, which are always the most important step. Like it's, the nice thing about these herbs is they don't kind of jump on the scene and say, we're better than anything else. What they say is you're already making so many right moves, but you're still unhappy. It's just a little tweak mm -hmm. is all that's needed in order to set uh, their proper wheels in motion. And so they are meant to piggyback on top of things that you're probably already doing for your pets, like probiotics. Yeah. And when it comes to Chinese herbs, are there ever any, times when they are going to um, contradict or just don't connect well with what you're already doing with your dogs? Because that's like my only concern was that I would, because I'm the type of person that I jump in feet first and it's like, what? In fact, I'm already on your website. I have two things in my shopping cart. That's just how bad I am. And then, <laughs> and then later on, someone is like, well, are you sure you're supposed to be doing that? Because aren't you doing this? That's when I'm like, oh, I didn't think. Well, it's certainly responsible to kind of wonder if there are going to be some interactions. Um, 
the nice thing about it is there usually aren't. And the reason why is because, uh, you know, in a little, like, let's say a dog's only taking a quarter of a teaspoon of a herbal formula. Um, so that's a thousand milligrams of something. That'd be a lot if it was a single drug, but if it's a, if it's a, a formula that contains say 10 plants and the 10 plants each have 30 different active ingredients. Well, now you have, you know, three milligrams of an individual compound going into a dog. And so the chances of three milligrams of any one substance creating a problem, unless it's a toxin Mm -hmm. uh, and you can't sell toxins. So, Barring that, you're not you don't really get pharmaceutical side effects. You don't really get adverse events. You don't really get clashes with pharmaceuticals. Uh, you don't you can never force a physiological reaction in an animal with that level. So then, how is it possible that these herbal formulas do anything? And it's because of the network effect of all these little tiny amounts of all these different compounds working as sort of a um, yeah, it basically is a network effect. When you take a, a quarter of a teaspoon of a whole herb extract, you're ingesting a network of compounds that plants were using in those ratios to achieve oftentimes the same things we want to have happen in our own bodies. So they be, they're inherently balanced if you're using a, a whole herb extract. So does that mean that if you give herbs that you could never – see something bad happen? And the answer is, yes, you can see something bad happen. It's usually mild. And more importantly, it is not caused by the herbs because there's not enough of anything in there to cause anything. But what it does do is it aggravates latent problems you didn't know your animal had. And that's good news because then you can pivot and pick a treatment that embraces those tendencies as well as the original ones. So a common situation that arises is um, there's a herbal formula called Voltrex that gold standard haps. And we use that for animals with partial cruciate tears. And we use it for hip dysplasia because it works extremely consistently uh, to kind of help heal the ligaments as opposed to not just limit pain, but heal the ligament and actually stitch it back together. Mm. However, there are certain dogs that uh, get stomach issues on the Voltrex. Now, they're almost always taking an NSAID at the same time. So that is several hundred milligrams of a pharmaceutical compound. So that's likely what is forcing the stomach issue. It's in the, And then the herbs are just an irritant to something that's preset to happen. So when Voltrex is irritating to a dog's stomach, I know that they're actually on the verge of having gastric ulcerative tendencies or at least gastritis mm-hmm. so that's something the owner didn't know because it wasn't provoked so then they go ahead and get what i recommend they get is a a formula called glenia and romania um which you'll probably see on that ask dr steve dvm facebook site over and over again glenia and romania when you take that you heal the stomach and that allows you to take the Voltrex. You take the Voltrex, you don't need the NSAIDs anymore. And so you've healed the stomach and you healed the ligament and you're off the drug. So, but it, it took the, it took the herbal formula to kind of, you know, another dog eats Voltrex and they're fine. 
But the dogs that don't, we know that they have this gastritis that's lurking that nobody knew about. So herbs will take an, uh, a latent problem and wake it up if, it, if they're not perfectly matched. And so how long should we try a, a formula to determine whether it's helping or not? I would say that if, if um, you're getting somebody skilled, like Dr. Stephanie Megro, <laughs> then you can expect um, improvements in uh, two to three weeks. If you haven't seen an improvement in two to three weeks, then probably the formula or whatever is being tried is just wrong. Even if you're not seeing side effects, if you're not seeing the benefits you're hoping for or just any benefits at all, then in two to three weeks, then it's time to change strategies. That's my observation after 30 years of doing this is that's, that's true. You shouldn't have to wait for months in order to see some sort of improvement. Um, that doesn't mean that they're going to be all the way better in two to three weeks, but at two to three weeks, you should be able to look at each other, whoever's in the household and go, I think my dog's better. Like, I think you're right. <laughs> like you should be able to have that conversation if you're on the right, right on the right track. So one of the things you touched on really quickly that, of course, Kimberly and I are really passionate about is the fresh food diet piece. So is that something that you counsel like all of your clients about when they first come in? Pretty much. You know, uh, veterinarians, they they frequently shy away from that conversation because I think they think it's going to be a lot of work and that it's going to be a lot of selling and um, and they just they just, I don't know, they just don't really want to have the conversation. Um, but I think it's really important because there just isn't anything going on in small animal medicine that is not improved by a fresh food diet. And the science is abundant for the various mechanisms that are put in play by real food diets um, as compared to kibble diets. Uh, and what those mechanisms are, that varies from one one condition to another. But in no circumstance can I find that a processed diet is a consistently better treatment choice than a real food diet. It just, it's just ludicrous to think so. We would never say that. For yeah, exactly. Never say that. Exactly. Right? Well, it's interesting. Several years ago, I, I sent out a question to um, veterinarians. So it's like open to all veterinarians to ask, what is your biggest concern when it comes to raw feeding? You know, like, I mean, to me, it's just so obvious. And to so many other people, it's so obvious. So it's, and I would even speak to veterinarians and it was always like this secret conversation where I would go and they would ask, well, what are you feeding your dog? And I'm like, well, I feed them a raw diet. And you see this change come over them. And it's just like, well, and it's like, you could tell it's like, how am I going to break the news to her that she's killing her dog? And it's like, you got to be really careful. And so I would begin explaining everything that I do. And the second I did that, all of a sudden, this person that I was convinced was about to try and sell me a bag of kibble is like, oh, okay. They become this undercover raw feeder themselves and we're comparing notes in there. And I'm like, why aren't you having this conversation with every single person? And so I asked. And the main thing that I learned was that no one trusts us as in the pet parents to do it correctly or to be consistent about it, to be smart about it, to continue educating ourselves about it. And it was 
I was surprised that, you know, the, the normal things in the media, where it's like, well, you know, the salmonella and hardly anyone brought any of that up. It was mostly, I just don't think you're going to do it right. And no one explained what right was, but they just knew that I wasn't going to do it right. Even though we're in the information age, like the, uh, if you look at the demographic of people that are most interested in holistic medicine, which includes the healthy diets that we're talking about, they're educated women in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, usually they're stuck with having to contend with sick kids, a sick husband, sick animals. Um, they're sick me. <laughs> yeah. And they've, they got to figure it out and they can't, you know, not figuring it out because some person in a white coat, usually a guy says, there's nothing you can do. That's not an option. Gosh, because you're crazy. a compassionate woman. I know that was my, that was why I'm a raw feeder. That's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> my first veterinarian, because um, Rodrigo had allergies and gut issues the first three years of his life. And he, he was looking at him on one of our many vet appointments and just shook his head and was like, it's really sad because he's not going to live long past his third birthday. It's just too bad. And that was, I was just like, what? Went home and immediately started typing and learning and came, you know, and I had heard about, I was already a blogger. So I had heard about raw feeding. The person who told me about it said that they went to the store, got a chicken and just threw it in the yard and let their dogs eat it. And I was like, I don't think that doesn't sound right, but let me do some research. And I mean, I like learning. Middle ground. Yeah, I like learning and and it didn't take long. I stumbled into many groups and and yeah, there's a lot of information out there that's a, a I won't say a bit sus. I'll be honest and say very like mm, that's wrong. But but you're you're an educated woman. So that means you know how to sift Exactly. And and it's fun. Right? It's like you start meet I mean, that's how Aaron and I met. It's just like I've just posted it would be so cool to do a podcast where we just talked about the nerdy stuff of raw feeding and she was like, I'll do it with you. And here we are. Excellent. Yes. Well, I'm so glad you guys are out there, you know, putting a message out there and 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 there is a lot of misinformation that the veterinary profession is guilty of disseminating such as, you know, when, you know, some clinics will make everybody wear masks and gloves that they're handling yes. off it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yes. By the American Veterinary Medical Association's own admission and publications, 98% of salmonella cases from pet food are in mm -hmm. kibble, not raw food. Like the, uh, the, the purported studies showing that, you know, there are bacterial contaminants in raw food. It's like, well, yeah, but how many? Yeah. So foods are oftentimes made commercially by, you know, flash freezing chunks of meat and then grinding it. So at those sub-zero temperatures, we just don't get bacteria growing. But where do they grow very readily? They grow very readily in, you know, extruded, heated, uh, you know, kind of, these sort of partially cooked diets and that's so that the a kibbles are, that's how they're made. And so kibble becomes a much, is much more likely to have uh, a lot of salmonella in it than a commercial raw diet, just to kind of compare one commercial diet to another. There's just no question. Yeah. There's never been uh, a salmonella outbreak in animals from a raw food. This just never happened. Yeah. 
So, it, but we've certainly seen it repeatedly with kibble, and we've seen problems with, for example, the melamine crisis. Yeah. You know, back in the early two thousands, that does not happen in people that are feeding fresh food. And how quickly do veterinarians just let that? you know, kind of fade from memory, thousands and thousands of animals were killed yeah. because of um, of that processed food mistake, which affected so many different brands because the brands aren't really all that different. Right. Buying all their ingredients from the same sources. Everyone got contaminated by the same mm-hmm. source and thousands of animals died. Can you imagine if it was a raw diet that killed thousands of animals? Oh my gosh. What the hullabaloo would have been like? But this, this kibble, well, we can let that slide. Oh, yeah. But, hey, we did culture salmonella, one microorganism from a raw diet. So that right. might be unsafe. I always find it interesting right. that whenever, like, with the vitamin D toxicity of a few years ago, you know, the DCM conversation of a few years ago, it's interesting because we'll, it'll become the main focus. Everyone's yelling at each other. We're, everyone's sharing articles. Everyone's, you know, it's just the main focus. And then... I don't know what happens, but the second the spotlight goes to, you know, conventional foods and not a fresh food diet, it just silently goes away. I mean, there is a moment during the DCM where I had people on my page trying to convince me that raw fed dogs got DCM because of all the sulfur. In the, and I'm just like, so as you're typing, are you just making this up as you're going along or, I mean, it's like, what? cause, cause I would ask, I was like, can you sh- share your, your sources for that? And, you know, one person was like, well, I'm not at home right now. And I'm not, and I'm like, yeah, you've been on my page commenting for eight hours. Where are you? And, you know, another person just got mad. This is my favorite. I get this all the time. I don't have to do your homework for you. And I'm like, I don't. I I don't agree with you. So I'm fine. I feel that I'm right. If you're trying to convince me that I'm wrong, I need you to come with some. <laughs> yeah, you, you show me what's, what you're reading uh, there. Exactly. <laughs> Make accusations and say, well, you do. Your I know <laughs> it's my favorite, my favorite argument, but it is. It's, it's really interesting because there is an. I mean, there still is a huge group. I think it was over 15,000 members of people who lost a pet or a pet got sick because of the chicken jerky treats. And that's like, no one talks about it. I think the last time I heard someone talking about it was in the documentary pet fold and, but no one talks about it. And those treats are still out there. You know, I mean, even when it was going on, those treats that the pet stores would have huge displays still selling those treats. So it's just this, it's interesting to me how we've reached a point where I guess we haven't reached it. We've always been a society where we trusted the, you know, the experts. So the doctors, the lawyers, the politicians, the media, we trusted them because that was their job was to give us the truth. But once we woke up to the fact that, you know, the pet food industry is a multi-billion dollar industry we many of us are just starting to ask the question of like when we see a study okay who's behind the study who do they work for who paid for this study what are they and i'm still seeing people who are like 
Nope, my veterinarian told me not to worry about it. My veterinarian told me not to read the ingredients on the dog food bag. It's just like that. They'll just take care of it for me. And it's just sort of like, and you're okay with that? Because your dog is still sick. Right. Yeah, if all the dogs were healthy, then we wouldn't care, right? right? The problem is that there are so many dogs that are unhealthy on processed diets and to not entertain for a moment that there could be an alternate reality, especially when we're all living in that alternate reality ourselves. Like what, what person do you know of that feeds themselves processed food? Three meals a day? <laughs> I mean, we're begging people to eat fresh foods, you know, it's like, please eat a vegetable. <laughs> and if they are eating out, you know, a bag of chips, three meals a week, they know they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. It's not like nobody ever told them. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, it just, everyone's got their biases and there's, there's always financial motivations, uh, you know, financial disincentives to kind of tell people the truth. And, and, and many veterinarians just also just accept what industry tells them and what their professors tell them and assume that they could never be wrong and they could never be biased. Um, so they trust those voices of authority themselves but, yeah, and I also uh, wonder how many vets honestly have the time. I mean, how many have the time to really rethink every single thing that they've known, that they've been taught? Because, I mean, I'm doing it as a hobby and it takes up a tremendous amount of time. I could not manage or imagine running a clinic and taking care of, you know, thousands of pets and what? you know, in the evening, pulling out a few raw feeding books and reading them for fun. I mean, I just, I cannot imagine that they even have the time, many of them. You're, you're right. And so it, it creates, it's a system where they just, veterinarians just have to ask somebody else, somebody else who's in authority. And then if that authority figure has a bias, then they're basically going to inherit that authority figure's bias. So it's it's a system that's set up to keep people thinking the way they think. And so that, so vets or animal owners just need to kind of, you know, take when, when their animal is not being adequately served by that model, they just need to have the courage to step outside of it. And they're going to be more willing to do that because of the podcast that you guys are doing. So kudos to you. Thank you. (laughs) This has been so fun. I actually have to go buy, go get dog food. Okay, you go. I got like two yes, okay. <laughs> right. kibbles on sale. <laughs> so, so one of the questions I had for you, and you know, I, I was new to working with Chinese medicine for my dogs, though I have gone to acupuncture and done things like this for myself. So, you know, learning about like the pulses and what you can learn from like the color of the tongue or the shape of the tongue or the I the one I always get for myself is like the scalloping. <laughs> yeah. Um so are there things like that that pet parents can learn to start assessing their dogs for themselves? Or are there any kind of like easier thing, you know, easy things that, that we can, can do like that for ourselves and for our animals? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of vets have trouble with pulse diagnosis. So it would be hard for uh, the general public to do that probably. But yeah, if your dog is panting, um, I guess what I would say is if you're so lucky as to have a holistic vet around, um, that can help you interpret these things, then kind of start to take note. And so taking note of the tongue color um, is going to be helpful to that veterinarian if you can kind of, and the most meaningful tongue color is going to be when the dog licks its lips and you see the underside of the tongue. So if it's 
that's the true colors of the tongue. It's like, what does it look, what does the underside of the tongue look like? So I usually tickle their nose or give them a treat or whatever. And then the tongue comes out and then I can get a, a good look. And you think, well, what could it possibly mean? Well, it means what you think it means. It's, it's a, it's a piece of flesh in your body that isn't obscured by skin. So whatever's going on with your blood supply, chances are it's going on in your tongue too, because the body never develops just single issues. It develops uh, certainly a localized issue, but as a result of a systemic tendency to problems. So it's almost like you have a bedrock and then you have an outcropping. And one day the outcropping is a torn cruciate. And one day the outcropping is you have an episode of uh, GDV. And one day the outcropping is the dog has collapsing trachea or whatever. It's the same bedrock from a Chinese medical perspective, and it just has different tendencies. And these bedrocks are almost always circulatory in some way. So as a result, as an example, um, what would a blood deficient dog look like? Well, sometimes they are actually anemic, but otherwise they just don't have a high circulating blood volume. They're down a quart. So who's going to be compromised with uh, in blood deficiency, the periphery of the body. So where's the periphery? It's like your fingers, your toes, your skin, the linings of the body. Um, so if the coat starts to look dry, the skin looks dry or the ears feel cool or the feet feel cool. Um, and there, and like I said, there's this dryness over time. And then what would you expect the tongue to look like in that dog? Well, probably a little pale, right? Cause it's just not getting the circulation. So, we take these different observations and kind of triangulate into what, what one thing could manifest or create all these different manifestations. That's the problem. That's the bedrock. And then we treat that bedrock. And then we see these various materializations go away. Maybe one day they're anemic. One day they have a skin problem. Maybe one day they have a gastric ulcer. They're all, they're all spins on the same underlying bedrock. So, Owners just kind of beginning to kind of um, take careful notes and and observe tongue colors and just another thing that owners can observe and then report to veterinarians for the veterinarians to then triangulate in and find the common center would be like timing of things. So some things are more common in the middle of summer or the, or the, or or it gets aggravated in the middle of summer. Now middle of summer might be June. But then some dogs only get problems in July and August. So knowing knowing those seasons is helpful because there's a circulatory story being told. Um, if you have uh, an acute skin rash in like May, June, a summer month, early summer months, that's almost always damp heat from a Chinese point of view. What's damp heat? It's acute inflammation. And it looks all moist and tacky and red and, and nasty and greasy and yeasty. Um, and what's the underlying cause of that? We know just from practice, those are the dogs that get better quickly on, on raw diets or homemade diets. If owners aren't comfortable with raw, then feeding a home-cooked diet. Um, home-cooked home diets and raw diets are the antidote to damp heat inflammation. They And they, they get rid of it handily. If you were to sort of say, you know, everyone's aware of the risks of raw meat, that it can have bacteria in it. So 
doing another study to show that raw meat has bacteria in it is useless. What somebody should be studying, if they were a scientist, they should be asking, why are you taking what is perceived to be a risk? What's the benefit? That's what we want to know. The benefit is that those animals with those acute inflammatory tendencies, they get better lightning fast on a on a diet that they have to work harder in order to assimilate. That's the secret. Animals on canned and kibble diets are on too high a plane of nutrition. That's why they're overweight. And it's that overweight tendency that makes them inflamed. We know that. It's the same story in humans. Dogs have the same metabolism that people do, more or less. So it's the same story. And likewise, if we eat real food as opposed to processed food, we have to work for our calories. And the more that we have to work for our calories, the slower that we assimilate things, the more we undo our own weight gains and our own inflammation tendencies. But still, those those inflammation tendencies happen in early summer. Now, late summer, July, August, that's when uh, if, if an owner says to a veterinarian, so yeah, this is like a, you know, every year thing, but it's kind of always July, August, a holistic veterinarian would know, okay, that's not damp heat. That's like a dry heat. That's like fire. Um, and the fire pathogen is something completely different. Ironically, the fire pathogen is aggravated by a pure raw meat diet. You think why it's cold. Why would a raw meat diet be aggravating to a fire pathogen? What we realize is that animals with these these late summer inflammatory tendencies, what they're missing is plant material. They can't have a lot. And uh, May-June inflamed dogs, they should have none. But uh, a July-August type of inflammation, skin inflammation case, they should have some. And it's the addition of that plant material to make up maybe just a sixth or so of the diet, 15, 20%, that is enough to um, put out that fire. Why? Because it turns out these fire cases are cases of dysbiosis. The microbiome is, is just off. There are certain species like lactobacillus that need carbs. And when we put animals on pure raw diets, the, the lactobacillus disappears. There's no food, so they leave. So who cares? Well, the problem is that lactobacillus is a major mediator of our immune systems. It essentially, in turn, helps other bacteria, and those other bacteria make something called propionate. And propionate is a compound that you then absorb. It's a byproduct of their of that microbial metabolism, and you absorb it, and it starts to modulate your immune system. And then presto, you're not as prone to immune-mediated disease like allergy or to autoimmune diseases. And so it really... Um, is becoming clear to us that a lot of immune media conditions are really microbiome conditions and uh, almost a lactobacillus deficiency. Well, that's fascinating because microbiome has been such a, a buzzword the last couple of years. And so I just love this idea of how this ties into Chinese medicine, you know, also, because, uh, I don't think people always understand like how it all interconnects. So I feel like you just gave us this amazing primer on, on how it all does connect. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and we only just talked about, you know, just one little thing. But um, so then there's the there's months of the year. And, you know, each month of the year has a different story to it. If something happens in December, 
I know that animal is either kidney deficient or they have an interior blood stasis problem or they have a so-called Wei Qi deficiency or a a local immune system deficiency. Um, I know all those are differentials just because of the month of the year. Um, So why, why, why is this cyclicity happening? It's because there's a cyclic vascular response in our own bodies and in our animals' bodies where in the middle of winter, you might imagine as you're holed up watching Netflix and it's cold outside and it gets dark early and you just, you just want to just lay low. Your body is doing the same thing. Your circulation is drawing to the interior. That's great because that's called hibernation. Essentially. <laughs> it's how we how you hibernate. But if you have a problem that is aggravated by either not having enough circulation on the exterior of the body, it's going to get worse. So that's why people get colds in the wintertime. The blood withdraws from the respiratory epithelium. The blood brings the immune system. You take this blood away from your respiratory epithelium, your borders are not as defended. And so you're more likely to get a, a cold that you might not get in the summertime. Meanwhile, if all your circulation is piling into your body interior, you're more likely to aggravate, say, um, an acute congestive problem like acute pancreatitis or nephritis or hepatitis, etc. In the summertime, that ac- that congested liver is gonna, you know, gonna get some pressure taken off it because circulation moves out to the periphery, and so a blood stasis problem gets better in the summertime. If you have arthritis, same thing. If the if the if the joint is aggravated by stagnant circulation, it's going to get better in the summer months because peripheral circulation is better. You're bringing blood to the joint. You're helping to heal it. You're helping to make synovial fluid, all that kind of stuff. Um, So the timing of the months that things occur uh, is tied to this annual circulatory pulse that pervades all our systems. It's, it's not, it's not, uh, it's actually was published in 1956 in the very eminent scientific journal Nature, where this was laid out, this annual cycle. It's amazing to me that that article isn't cited more than it is because it's it explains so much. And Chinese medicine, of course, they always said it's always about circulation. And so small wonder that they have tied these diagnoses to these certain months because our bodies shift in their circulatory state over those in a, in a, a very predictable fashion. So it's fast. It's endlessly fascinating. And it allows us to kind of begin, begin to kind of act, act uh, diagnose very accurately just on what time is something worse? What time, what month is something worse? Cause you imagine it, that over the course of a day, you have the whole thing playing out in miniature, right? When's the hold up part of the day? It's, you know, going to be midnight or the wee hours of the morning. So if you have an acute congestive tendency, like say congestive heart failure, you're going to be worse then. And if you have an old dog, they might wake up and start coughing at one or two or three in the morning. And then a Chinese medical practitioner will hear that and go, oh, they probably have blood stasis in their lungs. I need to use blood moving herbs. I need to use blood moving points for the lungs. Um, I need to make sure that I'm feeding a diet that... um, doesn't contribute to this sort of vasoconstrictive state. And you might think, really? Diet contributes to that? Of course, because essential hypertension in people, this chronic 
high blood pressure that most of us are walking around with, that's diet driven. That is, that is vasoconstriction and is pulling a blood to the interior body mediated by us being on too high a nutritional plane. So even for a dog with a congestive heart failure, I'm going to be changing their diet to something where the calories don't come as easily. Because I know that as I do that, their entire body is going to be less prone to hypertension. Vessels are going to dilate. The lungs are going to be able to push blood out into the body periphery. We're going to take pressure off the heart and you're going to have less coughing. So just none of these situations that we're laying out here does diet not have a role to play because diet is very much a controller of circulation. And you only have to look at the fact that we're we're all a, we're all consuming blood pressure pills to realize, you know, that, that there's something pervasive going on and it's, it's our food. Yeah. My husband was able to get off blood pressure medicine and, uh, reverse his cholesterol numbers by doing a keto diet. Yeah. So there you go. It's like, uh, and you know, there's, you know, people need to experiment with themselves in order to kind of find out what's the best approach. And, um, they can also like, likewise, some animals will do fine on a freeze dried diet. Some will do okay on a raw diet. Some, some dogs need home cooked diets, but to kind of be able to kind of just go and, and take those steps and, and sort of figure out what could be possibly helping. Um, so, yeah. Well, I am so excited that you've been sharing all this with us today. Uh, you had mentioned briefly your Facebook group, and I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes for everyone. How did that get started? Was that something that started during COVID also? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was um, same concept of just, uh, of course, now people have more access to veterinarians. Still, they don't have a lot of access to holistic vets. Those are still very much in the minority, unfortunately. One of the big disappointments of my career, I hope that we'd have at least 10% of the veterinarians would be integrated by now, but it's probably way less than 5%. But, oh, well. Anyway, I started that Facebook group on the advice of a friend um, because, uh, you know, it just, there was just a need for the information to get out there. And I realized, just like I'm talking to you, and I can say, you know, if something happens at a certain month of the year and they have these symptoms or whatever, then probably this is going on. And so probably this herbal formula will work and probably you should change the diet this way in order to do this and not do that. Because I can, I can do that in a podcast. I can certainly do it in writing in response to um, a request for help. So right now the group is free, but but the problem is I get so many requests for help each day. I'm sure. I have to pause it, you know, get, get 20 or 30 or 40 questions answered and open, open it up again. And then probably within a couple of days, I'm back to 70 or 80 questions and I have to pause it while I answer their questions. And so it's, but still people can read what, others have been going through. So I do encourage people if they're going to go to ask Dr. Steve DVM on Facebook, just to use the search tool and type in whatever is a concern for you and, you know, look through the posts because you might well find that somebody has already asked and I've already answered the question that, uh, that they have. Right. I'll make sure we have a, a link in the show. I love using that search feature. Sometimes I just look and see if other people had something that one of my dogs had just for fun. Cause that's what I do for fun. <laughs> yes. When you get the answer faster, because some people have been waiting for a month for me to answer them. I hope to get 
get them answers in the next few days. But, you know, I don't feel good about people waiting a month. They know they shouldn't ask me about emergencies, but still it's, it's, so I do, I do hope that people use those search features. So thanks for, thanks for doing that. <laughs> well, I'll also make sure we have a link in the show notes to the gold standard herbs, and we have a discount code for anybody who wants to order and try these. The discount code is dog mom, and it'll save you 10%. And uh, we'll have that linked for everybody. And we're really appreciative of your time and for everything you shared with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> 